Well, good morning. Now, don't let your don't let your song sheet get too far away because I'm actually going to have you reference that for a little bit uh, uh, this morning. So, I guess my question is: Do you like to sing Christmas carols? You know, I'm one of those people though that thinks that the Christmas music you shouldn't start playing it. The radio shouldn't start playing it until December first. You know, at at the earliest. And, you know, we were hearing Christmas music, the Christmas decorations. You go into the stores, and by, I guess, by the second week of November, I know Costco had all of their Christmas stuff up. And, of course, as you're walking down the, down the aisles where all those Christmas decorations were, all the little uh, musical things are playing, and so you're hearing the Christmas music. But I don't like for it to start before December 1st. Anybody else, would you like to... To hear it start earlier or later? Earlier. Earlier. <laughs> <laughs> We're already starting 2020. <laughs> I like to enjoy Thanksgiving. Yeah, I, I'm saying well, I, like, I like to enjoy Thanksgiving. And once Thanksgiving's over, then Christmas. But, you know, there's some, there are some Christmas carols that I feel like I could sing all year long. Uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is one of those. And we're going to be looking at a, at, uh, a section of the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2, but looking at it, in a sense, through the lens of this Christmas hymn. Uh, let me tell you just a little bit about this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I mean, this song has been a very popular Christmas song do you know the number one popular Christmas song? It's not this one. Silent Night. But to me, that's not one That's not one that I feel like I could sing all year long. Whereas Hark the Herald Angels kind of is. That's just, that's just me. But it's interesting. They did a survey of 60 or 65 different Protestant denominations. And this Christmas hymn was in almost all of their hymnals. Uh, so my goal today is to kind of provide us with a better understanding of this hymn, where it came from, and how we should understand it as we sing it. You know, this hymn was written by Charles Wesley, uh, the brother of uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. And Charles Wesley, they kind of think, wrote close to 9,000 hymns or poems. That's a lot. And this is one of the most well-known. Now, he wrote this in 1739. And it was said to have been inspired by the sounds of the bells as he walked to church one Christmas morning. Now, as with most of his hymns, uh, Wesley did not put it to a tune. He did not stipulate what music would go with it. And it was uh, many years later, uh, 1855, when a uh, church organist took Wesley's uh, Christmas hymn and put it together with music by Felix Mendelssohn, 
creating the tune pretty much that we know now. So, so let's begin by looking first at the scripture I want to reference, which is Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I feel like this was kind of a good follow-up to Jason's talk on, on joy. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say this, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, when Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, it had ten stanzas. Now, I've got close to 26 points I need to make today, and I'm only going to cover the first three stanzas, so uh, be glad we're not going through all ten. But when Wesley first wrote this, the first phrase was actually worded differently. It said, hark how all the welkin rings. It loses something. It loses something, doesn't it? Yes. How many of us know what a welkin is? W-E-L-K-I-N. Well, I didn't know what a Viking opera. Those were welcome. No, a welking. No, welking. Actually, you know, it says, "Hark! How all the welking rings." That speaks of the totality of the inhabited universe, giving God glory. So, welking includes the part of the universe where God is. How's that? Which is everywhere. It's really meant to be a beautiful expression of the totality of the universe, of the cosmos, of all of creation. So Wesley's saying, hark how all of creation rings. But I guess apparently someone along the way said, hey, uh, listen, maybe you want to make it a little bit more simple for us common folks to understand. So we ended up with Hark the herald angels sing. Now let's, if, if you've got the Christmas music sheets, and if you don't, that's okay, I'm going to walk through them, but if you turn to the one that, the, the page that has Hark the herald angels sing. Page one. Page one. Well, that's an easy page then. And I really want to look at the, at the uh, first stanza there. And you can see, that we're called to hark as the herald angels sing. In other words, listen to the divine messengers. And these, these angels of God have been sent as heralds. And listen to what they're saying. And this is drawn straight from Luke as we just, as we just read. That tells that after the angel had told the shepherds what was going on in Bethlehem, that angel was joined by a multitude of the heavenly host who were praising God. And when you think of multitude, what do you think of? 
crowd. A football game crowd, okay. Not 50, not 150, maybe 50,000, okay? Well, 30,000 for NC State, 50,000. But, uh, but imagine uh, this, when they're using this term, this multitude, to, to me, I just imagine the sky completely filled with, with, with an angelic host. The heavens emptied out, and the whole angelic host from horizon to horizon <coughs> filling the skies, singing glory to God in the highest. Can you, can you imagine that? I mean, it's gone from one angel to an entire uh, uncountable multitude. And we're called to listen to their message. Glory to the newborn king. In other words, these herald angels are announcing the birth of a king. The king. And they're saying, here's the message. Peace on earth and mercy mild. What does this mean? This means that this king of kings... These heralds that are announcing that he's come, they're not bringing a message of war, but a message of peace. Not a message of anger, but a message of love. Not a message of condemnation and of judgment, but a message of mercy. And what is this peace? What is this type of mercy? That they're talking about. We see that in the very next phrase. God and sinners. Reconciled. That is this peace. This mercy. Consists of the reconciliation of God and sinners. Accomplished. Through the birth. Of this king. Now. Just going through those first four phrases quickly. These are what. These have described what the messengers, who the messengers are, and their message. Now, we look at what our response should be. Joyful, all ye nations rise. This is our response to this type of message. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Stand up in joyous awe and praise of God. You know, in in scriptures, when someone comes into the presence of God, they rise, they very often take off their shoes in humble adoration, in awe of the presence of the Almighty God. I mean, think think about in, in a court setting. When the judge enters the courtroom, just before the judge enters, what does the bailiff say? He says, all rise. You rise in respect to the judge entering the courtroom. And here, you know, he's, he's kind of saying, Joyful all you nations rise. Rise in respect to the king who has come. Calling on all nations to stand up and rise in humble adoration. And join in the joyous all. Join in in the triumph of the skies. 
He means that we're to join. We're to join in this triumph of Christ that was being announced in that Palestinian night. Join and end with this heavenly host, praising God. We respond to this in faith, in trust, in belief. And we join in the triumph that is being announced by these angels in the sky. Lifting our voices along with theirs. With the angelic host proclaim. You know, he's saying, you're not only indeed to join with them, but, but with them in your hearts and your voices, you're to declare the same thing that the heavenly host is declaring. We're to declare this. And what are we supposed to declare? Well, that's the very next thing. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Declare that. Christ, now is the English word for the Greek name of the Old Testament Messiah. And what this is saying is that the host, the heavenly host is proclaiming the Messiah has been born for our salvation in the city of David. Bethlehem, just where God had prophesied it more than 600 years ago through the prophet Micah. So there is the first stanza full of this biblical truth. And we have a refrain. And the refrain is the same phrase as the first two phrases. But here in the song, at this point, it functions a little bit differently. In the, in the first stanza, when we very first sing them, we're singing the description of the message and the messengers. But now when you sing them in the refrain, and each time you sing them in the refrain, you're really meant to be singing them back to God in response to what we understand about the messengers, the message, and about the revealed Christ. So it becomes our heartfelt response. And so now the refrain serves to express our own praise to God for the glorious gift of the Messiah. And so when we sing glory to the newborn king, we are confessing that the focus of our hearts and our lives ought to be on giving him glory. And that's the first stanza. The second stanza, let's look at that. Christ by highest heaven adored. Now, the, the next two stanzas are almost wholly taken up with a focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ by highest heaven adored. So, here in the second stanza, we're called to consider whose birth it is that is being announced. And, and Wesley wants us to understand here, saying, it's the Messiah's birth, the Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, it's this Messiah who is adored by highest heaven. In other words, you, we've got to understand that this Messiah is worshipped by 
the greatest created beings ever. It's worshipped by all other created beings. They worship the Christ, the everlasting Lord. This Messiah is not merely an earthly king, but He is the incarnate, eternal Lord of the universe. And the hymn goes on to say, Late in time, behold Him come. Late in time. Well, does that mean that Jesus was late showing up? No. It's it's just it's an expression. It doesn't mean that that he's missed his schedule. It's saying that after many hundreds of years of people waiting and waiting at the right time, at the time of God's appointing, he came into this world. And how did he come into this world? Offspring of the virgin's womb. He came into this world in the most remarkable way. He was brought into this world through a young virgin. And then, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He's saying that when you look at Jesus, when you consider Jesus, you should behold the Godhead. You know, the Godhead is another English word that translates a Greek word that has in it the fullness of deity. So when he says veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, he means in Jesus Christ, you behold the entirety, the fullness of deity in bodily form. Hail the incarnate deity. In other words, when you greet him, when you honor him, when you you acclaim him, when you acknowledge Jesus, when you do this, acknowledge him as God in the flesh, as God incarnate. Acknowledge him, own him as not only the savior of sinners, but as the Son of God incarnate. Who is pleased as man with men to dwell. He's saying that Christ in His mercy was pleased. That is, He chose of His own will to dwell with us. To be like us in a fallen world. As a human being. Uh, You may remember in the Old Testament. uh, In 2 Samuel. David is telling the Lord. That he wants to build a temple for him. And the Lord says to David. Ever since my people Israel. Were wandering in the wilderness. Leaving Egypt on the way to the. Land of Canaan. Did I ask them to build a temple? No. I dwelt with them in a tent. An Old Testament picture. Israel was moving around in tents. They were nomads. They were wandering in the wilderness. And when God commanded that a place be built to represent His presence, He said, I want it to be like what you are right now. 
It's not going to be an ornate temple at this time. It was a tent. It was beautiful. It was expensive. It was elaborate to to communicate the presence of the Lord. But the Lord was saying to, to David, when my people were in tents, I came and dwelled in a big tent in the middle of them. I dwelled with them as they were. Well, you see, Jesus is doing something greater than that. He comes and dwells with us as a human, as the God-man, fully inhabiting our experience, living among us as one of us, pleased as man with men to dwell. And I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but now we come to the first time in this carol where the name Jesus is mentioned. You're all the way into the, really to the, I guess it's close to the uh, uh, end of the second stanza before he's named Jesus, our Emmanuel. You know, we've, we've seen him as king, as Messiah, incarnate deity, but now we know his name, Jesus, for he is the people's savior. Literally, Emmanuel, God with us. And then comes the refrain again. Now the third stanza. Hail the heavenly prince of peace. Well, Wesley pulls this out of Isaiah. This goes referencing back to Isaiah 9, 6. Where the Messiah is described among other things. As the Prince of Peace. And the hymn is saying. When you hail Jesus. When you acclaim him. When you honor him. Acclaim Jesus the Messiah. As the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace who was prophesied. By Isaiah. And when you hail Jesus. Hail him as the Son of Righteousness. And this. Is pulled out of. Malachi, that's the first part of Malachi 4.2, pointing out the prophecy of Jesus as the son of righteousness prophesied by Malachi. And when you held Jesus, acknowledge that light and life to all he brings. Pulled from John 1.4, where John reminds us, That he was the light of the world and the life of men. And then in John, this was going all the way back to Psalm, to Psalm 27. Does anybody know Psalm 27 verse 1? The Lord is my light and my salvation. He is my life. Then, risen with healing in his wings... Again, referring back to Malachi. This time it's the second half of uh, Malachi 4.2 where the Son of Righteousness is described as with rising in His wings. Then the next phrase, mild He lays His glory by. Comes straight out of Philippians 2.7. 
And this is probably one of the most uh, concise ways to to write out Philippians 2.7. Philippians 2.7 says, He emptied Himself and made Himself of no reputation. Mild He lays His glory by. And then the next three phrases give us three reasons why Jesus was born. He was born that man no more may die. In other words, Jesus was born to remove the curse brought about by Adam's sin and ours. You know, what was that curse? Well, Paul says the wages of sin is death. He was born to remove the curse brought by Adam's sin and ours. So that man no more may die. He was born to raise the sons of earth. Born to raise us to a newness of life, as Romans 6 says, Born to raise us that we would be resurrected to eternal life. And as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, he was born to give them second birth. That is, Jesus was born that we might be born again, that we might be regenerated, that we might be renewed and transformed. And then again, we sing the refrain. We'll look back to Luke 2 again. Luke 2, 13 and 14. And I'll read this again where it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. I want you to see just a, a, a few things in this rich, rich passage. What are the angels busy doing? They are busy doing, well, they're busy praising God. I mean, the very thought of the incarnation of the Son of God has set these angels singing and they cannot help but praise God. And as I said before, this multitude stretching from horizon to horizon, singing glory to God in the highest. And Bill kind of hit on this earlier. And I think sometimes we get caught up in the busyness of this season. You know, we get we get caught up with, and I know I do, occupied with thoughts of what presents we need to buy. Occupied with uh, preparations for a big family gathering. Or maybe occupied with problems within a family. Uh, I know that sometimes we can feel crushed down by the rapidness and the squeeze of the seasons. And we even wonder, do we have our own priorities right? Well, I think we can look to the angels kind of as an example. What were they busy doing? They were busy praising God. So I think that there's nothing more important, especially in this season, than having our priority be that of praising God. Choosing an, choosing an angelic priority, so to speak. 
and the message. The angels were giving us a message, glory to God in the highest. And that points us to that this message of redemption is all about God's glory. Uh, you know, the most glorious object in our solar system is the sun. The heaviest, it's a source of gravity, the source of all splendor, of all radiance. And yet the glory of the sun pales before the glory of God. And yet, it seems like, at least for us, thinking about the sun may be the closest thing we can relate to to grasp a simple understanding of the glory of God and His radiance. But you think about it, God holds all things together and gives light to everyone. He's the source of all true light for the minds and spirits of the people. And I think we can still look at this gospel story of the coming of Christ and we can still be man-centered about it. Uh, but the angels are reminding us that God's redemption is all about His glory. And the reason is because everything is about His glory. Now, to kind of tie this in with joy, uh, you may be familiar with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the, the answer is that the chief, the chief reason that we are here, uh, that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So the chief reason that we're here is to glorify God and have joy in Him, to enjoy Him forever. And so the angels are reminding us as Jesus came in the, into this world on a rescue project to save men and women and boys and girls, it's still all about God's glory. And the remarkable thing that we find here in the Bible is, well, it is remarkable to find out that God is to be glorified. But to me, the remarkable thing is that God has chosen to manifest his glory in such a way that it blesses and saves his people. Wow. To me, that that's it's it's. In it's it's not surprising that the chief end of man should be to glorify God. That's kind of not really surprising, but it is surprising that this has been joined inseparably with our enjoying Him fully forever. That's the amazing part. And throughout the scriptures, we see various manifestations of God's glory and how it it brings good to his people. You think about God manifesting his glory in creation, giving light and order and beauty and life to the universe. And in Exodus, when God manifested his glory, 
It was to deliver his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and lead them through the wilderness. He manifested his glory when he gave them the law, which was given for their good. And when he established his worship in the tabernacle, given his people a way of approaching him. And in the rest of the Old Testament, you know, God manifested his glory to reveal himself to the prophets when he, him, in the, he then sent those prophets out to bring truth to his people. But in, in, in each of these cases, the manifestation of God's glory, the people were overwhelmed with fear. The Egyptians driven back, the people of God trembling at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses, unable to enter the tent of meeting for the brightness of God's glory. Isaiah, overwhelmed with fear. And yet, even as God was manifesting his glory then, that terrified, he was extending grace to comfort, truth to instruct, and mercy to redeem. Even the very expression of this central covenant promise that God made in scriptures reflects his dual commitment to his own glory and the good of his people. We see in the Old Testament, God promises repeatedly, you will be my people and I will be your God. And we see a similar pattern on this first Christmas night, but in a more wonderful way. You do, we see the glory of God, and we do see the fear of the shepherds, but it's followed by the proclamation of the good news of great joy. The song of the angels which filled the skies and proclaimed the manifestation of the glory of God and his gift to his people. So what is it about Christmas in particular? that manifests the glory of God and brings him honor? Well, the birth of Jesus Christ is the greatest gift ever given. We know that Jesus is the most priceless, the most valuable, the most needful gift anyone could ever receive. And for God to give his son to the world We've got to understand that that is such an expression of love, of such generosity, of such matchless grace as to bring God glory. It also confirms that God is the one who keeps his promises, whose word is trustworthy as he sent the long-awaited promised king to his people. And since God is, is being glorified in this matchless gift of his son, that brings him glory and it brings us great joy and the ability to have true peace with God. And all of God's people, all of whom, all of those with whom he is well pleased, have his good pleasure. The, the final thing I do want to point out is verse 14, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
Now, many of you may know the King James Version that says, Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. You may have another version that says, Peace towards those upon whom God's favor rests. Or, Peace towards men of goodwill. You can see what all these modern translations are getting at. This is not some generic announcement going out to everyone. This is an announcement for people who believe the message. It's not that there's going to be peace for everyone. Those who are indifferent to the announcement, those who are indifferent to this Christ, to this Savior, there is no peace or joy for them. You know, often the message of the angels is mistaken as a call for men and women to all be at peace with one another. But the angel was not calling for world peace, was not calling for peace among neighbors, but was calling for peace between man and God. This peace is only for those upon whom God's favor rests. For those who have rested and trusted in Jesus Christ. Here in Luke 2, we see both heaven and earth responding to the news of the birth of Jesus in such a way, I think, that it instructs, exhorts, and challenges us in our attitudes our priorities, our values, our pursuits and actions as it pertains to worship and our behavior in general and even our reason, not just for celebrating the season, but our reason for living. Well, let's pray. Lord, Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the gift of this beautiful carol that is so filled with biblical truth. Father, as we sing these words, as we sing praises to you, may we understand the theology and the scripture behind them. May we understand and believe what we sing. And above all, may we trust in the only one and live for the only one who can give us peace. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.